The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to another new episode of Serious Fun. As always, I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, uh, and it's good to be back. Uh, You might have wondered, hey, um, I thought this podcast was dead. I might have even deleted it from my podcast feed. Well, you should know, folks, that uh, it's, it's simple screenwriting 101. If you don't see the podcast body after it goes over the cliff, it's not actually dead. Ergo, the podcast is back. You might be wondering, what is he talking about? It's been a long pandemic, folks. It's one of the many reasons there's been a gap. Um, So I don't want to get into all the details and that sort of thing, but obviously the pandemic takes its toll in different ways. uh, And so it's been kind of tough to find uh, time to get back to doing the podcast. I'm also working on some other books and projects. But I thought, you know, I really do want to get back to this. I love doing podcasts. I love doing serious fun. Um, And I thought now is the time. And uh, folks, we have a great way to start off a new block of serious fun. Um, I'm really excited about this interview. You know the face. You know, those iconic aviator sunglasses, the mustache, that late, great Stan Lee. The, to the world, he's the creative, he was the creative engine behind the Marvel Empire, you know, with hands in the creation of some of the most enduring icons in popular culture. Folks like the Hulk and Spider-Man and the X-Men. And, of course, that list of cinematic cameos that goes beyond even the wildest dreams of someone like Alfred Hitchcock. In short, he was your friendly comics grandpa for so many years, and as we know, a creative mastermind that rivals the likes of Walt Disney and George Lucas. At least, that's the story that's been breathlessly repeated in press releases and by Hollywood. The truth, well, it's more complicated, as it so often is with human beings. My guest this week is Abraham Reisman. Abraham is a journalist and an essayist whose work can be found at New York Magazine and its subsite Vulture, as well as the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and Vice. He's also the author of a brand new biography of comics legend Stan Lee called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. This book is exhaustively and impeccably researched, and uh, it argues that the real legend of Stan Lee, um, and far from just being you know the comics mastermind, um, is one also of accusations of stolen credit, failed and even criminal business enterprises, frustration with the very medium that made him famous, as well as tragic final years of elder abuse and exploitation. It's an important work to understand the enduring legacy of a pop culture icon, as well as our value that we place in a culture, in our culture, on the celebrity of the individual. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of that and a lot more with Abraham Reisman right now on Serious Fun. Abraham Reisman, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, really excited to talk to you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you as well. Yeah, well, thank you. Not, most people aren't, so that's always a little bit surprising <laughs> when I hear that. Uh, nice change of pace. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's refreshing, yeah. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, at the beginning of the show, I talked a little bit about some of your background, that kind of stuff. I always think, you know, one of the first questions or that, that I like to ask, something I learned back when I, ironically, my political science classes, not my journalism or media classes, um, is, is, is a really like, I want to hear the Abraham Reisman story, right? The Abraham Reisman story. The Abraham oh. Reisman story. Like, how did you Barely. get to this point where you're writing this amazing book about Stan Lee? Aww. Well, thank you for calling it amazing. Um, you know, it, it's not that sordid a tale. Uh, long story short, you know, I was born and raised in uh, suburban Illinois, in uh, Oak Park, Illinois. Um, got into comics at a young age. Um, was a big Marvel head, DC less so. Um, then, you know, went off to college, sort of dropped off in comics in college. And then the first couple of years after college, which you know, it was a common story. Um, and then uh, professionally, I started working in journalism in college. I was uh, worked in public radio in the summers and then uh, and in the college newspaper during the year. And then uh, after I graduated, I went to work for a newspaper that went out of business three months after I started working there. And then the week after that, the economy collapsed. Mm -hmm. It was 2008. Mm -hmm. So uh, I freelanced around for a while and then ended up working at a TV station in New York where I was a producer of a weekly TV series and then freelanced more uh, for various spots um, and ultimately then got uh, a gig at uh, New York Magazine. I was a, a staffer at New York Magazine and uh, wrote mostly for Vulture, their arts and culture site. Uh, which was a great honor and where a lot of good things happened for me. Uh, and then I, uh, in 2018, well, in 2015, um, I started writing a profile of Stan Lee for Vulture. Um, we can, there's kind of a funny story behind that that maybe we can get into later. Um, but I, I wrote the profile, it was published in early 2016, actually February 2016. So we're almost exactly uh, five years from it now. And um, it did pretty well and people noticed it. And then flash forward to 2018, uh, Stan Lee passes away in November of that year. And right after that, um, I got a call from uh, Penguin Random House from an editor at their Crown imprint asking if I might be interested in doing a full biography of Stan. So um, I ended up leaving my full-time job to work on the book uh, and I've been, um, you know, as part-time and now just full-on freelance. So that's uh, that's the thumbnail version of my my long saga. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that you left your job uh, to work on this. And uh, as someone who is also writing a book, not to, like, turn that around, um, nope. it's it's a tremendous undertaking. Doing a book? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you're in a position where you are a historian, you are a journalist, you are a biographer in this in this work. Um, and so I, I guess I want to ask, like, what was the process for this? Like, obviously, it's a full time job. Um, you know, and, and this book, you read it and it's just very, uh, it's incredibly thorough. You go all the way back to not just, you know, Lee's parents, but also like his grandparents and his other family members. And, you know, yeah. you really trace this guy's lineage. And so what was your process like? Did you, like when you, when you plan this book out, when you start doing the research and, you know, I, I know you've been kind of critical of other biographies of Stan Lee before. What did you do in that process to kind of set things apart? Um, you know, I, I tried to, it's hard to describe uh, the process of writing a book. There's a lot of ins and outs to it, but to answer, I'll, I'll jump to your second question there. Cause I think it might illuminate the first as well. You know, I, I don't want to 
spend a lot of time being derogatory towards other authors. That said, I did want to set myself apart. I, I um, you know, felt that the previous biographies had been either incomplete or insufficiently um, investigative. Um, or sometimes just based on outright falsehoods and misconceptions. Um, so, you know, when I was approaching the idea of building on that or, you know, doing things that had not been done in that realm before, I basically just said, let's treat this like it's real journalism, you know, like very often comics journalism is not um, done by people who have a lot of training in journalism, which is not their fault. It's really freaking hard to get training in journalism or experience in it. Um, I don't denigrate anybody in the comics journalism field who doesn't have the kind of experience that I've been lucky enough to be able to get. But I thought, okay, let's take the experience I do have, which is not just writing about comics. I've written about anything and everything. I've written financial journalism, tech journalism, science journalism, political stuff, everything. So I thought, okay, let's take the 15 odd years I've had uh, working in the journalism field and try to apply those skills um, and think of it not so much as comics journalism and just think of it as, okay, well, let's write a biography of this guy. Um, and so what I wanted to do was just get into as much detail as I could and paint as much of a full picture as I could. And also to remove any traces that might be there of sort of fanboying, you know. Um, and some of the past stand biographies, not all of them, but some of them have been very much from a fanboy perspective. Um, and, and they're proud of that. I'm, that's not me dissing them. Like the the books themselves will be open about the fact that there's a lot of love in there for Stan Lee. And I don't have hatred for Stan Lee, but I also don't have love for him. I'm, I approached him as a biographical subject. You know, I grew up seeing Stan on the Marvel Action Hour when he would do those little live action intros. And then when I started reading the comics, obviously it was still Stan Lee Presents back then and he's a big presence. But I've never really had that kind of, um, you know, emotional connection with Stan that a lot of people, including authors of some of the past books, really have had. And I tried to just you know, objectivity is a terrible word. It doesn't really mean anything uh, and often can just be a dodge for bad things. Um, but uh, I did try to aspire to some degree of, maybe if not objectivity, at least just truth and unvarnished factualness. So, um, you know, there are a lot of ways that you get to that, whether it's looking at lots of primary source material or you know, doing, I did more than 150 interviews for this thing. I mean, I just talked to anybody who would talk to me who had anything to do with Stan or perspectives on Stan. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you have more specific questions, I'm happy to answer, but that's sort of the rough well, outline. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that's kind of interesting. This is a sprawling work in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, Stan Lee uh, lived a very long life and, he did. and was a tremendously influential figure in popular culture and the media. Um, and, you know, I, I reading this, I'm like, you know, I almost wonder, like, there's probably stories out there that, you know, even with the most exhaustive effort, you know, there might still be things like you, there's always this other perspective or something like that. Sure. Um, and, uh, it, and so, but I, but I, again, I just want to reiterate, just like I was reading this, I'm thinking like, this is one of the most thorough accounts I've ever read of this man's life. 
Um, and, Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, like, look, I don't. I'm not bringing you on here just to like be like, oh, you're so great, you need, like blow smoke and all that. I wouldn't mind. I that, mean, I could do that. We could totally do that. <laughs> um, but no, it, it legitimately, uh, you know, as an academic, as somebody who's worked in media and that kind of stuff, I'm reading this. I'm like, this guy really did his homework. So it's just uh, that was kind Thank of you. From a, yeah. I, I was, Right. That's what the response I want people to have, yeah. even if they don't like the conclusions that I come to. I, I would hope at least that people will go, well, the guy did as much as he could to try and look through the facts right. and figure out what was going on. But you're right. There are lots of question marks still in there. You know, the, the big question mark, of course, is who created all the Marvel characters. Well, let's you know? let's let's talk about that, because this push and pull between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby over who should get credit for what. I mean, this is something like I'm working on a book about the Black Panther right now. There's not a yeah. lot out there about the specific creation of Black Panther, but kind of reading through um, what you have in the book and uh, just sort of the other stories around other characters, you know, there's probably a whole bunch of different ways to approach it, a whole bunch of different stories, right? And, you know, comics aficionados have been arguing about this for years. How much credit does Lee get? The the, the vast public probably sees Stan Lee's the guy who created Marvel, so he created everybody. Um, sure. You know, just like Walt Disney was the guy who created Mickey Mouse and all that. Um, but your book also suggests that, you know, as much as Stan was kind of this, like, guy who's, like, you know, uh, really gassed himself up, Kirby did a little bit, too. Um, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so what was your take uh, on the kind of relationship between these two men after reading the book? I mean, um, that's that's kind of the big thing is, like, that's that's sort of core to his story. Sure. Well, it's not just core to his story. It's core to his story. Right. I mean, you know, it's the the question of who created these characters is massively consequential financially, artistically, you know, historically, excuse me, historically, journalistically. Um, and the the conclusion I came to is perhaps disappointing for a reader, but it's that I don't think we're ever going to know in particular detail who came up with what the comics industry was very fly by night in the 60s people were not keeping detailed documentation of this stuff um and that means ultimately it's one man's word against another now you can look at other sort of circumstantial evidence and go well you know before and after working with kirby uh stan didn't do much that was notable whereas kirby did a lot of notable stuff without stan uh or you know you know, Jack Kirby's daughter talking about Jack saying to her, you know, I'm creating Susan Storm and it's based off of you, you know, like li little things here and there that suggest the Kirby narrative is a little more credible. Mm -hmm. But as you say, yeah, there are aspects of what Kirby said that don't really add up. And whether that's like him misremembering or forgetting or or making stuff up mm -hmm. is, is really hard to determine. Um, so the message of that part of the book, and I would argue in some ways the message of the whole book, if if I'm maybe so bold as to attribute there being something like that, is we have to live with ambiguity, whether it's factual ambiguity or moral ambiguity. Um, it's very frustrating for the human mind to try to confront ambiguity. We want there to be answers to our questions. And it, it you know, I mean, think about all the millennia of coming up with who wrote the Bible, for example. You know, um, the authorship is something that we want to be clear. We go, well, somebody wrote this. It must, we, you know, that knowledge exists. Um, we should find out what it is. But very often that knowledge doesn't exist. Somebody did write a text, but we'll probably never know who wrote it. Um, and in this case with the characters, we're just probably not going to know. Um, and that's difficult, but it's also the only honest answer. Mm -hmm. um, and... 
you know, that's the trouble with ambiguity. It's, it's very often the defining aspect of a question and it's just very difficult to sit with. Yeah. And also I would argue that kind of in our current climate, our current narrative uh, in terms of how we just think about things more broadly as a culture, there's not a lot of room for it. Like we, we, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. People don't, they want factual and moral certitude. Right. Um, And it just doesn't work that way all the time, you know? Um, but you're right. I mean, that that's something that has already come up. I mean, before the book's even out, I'm already getting criticism, which, you know, I don't want to get too much into, but people are really have assumed that this book is like canceling Stan Lee. Right. And that's just not it. I mean, I'm not canceling anybody. And I mean, that word is, is so charged and in many ways meaningless mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's not worth getting into too much detail on that specific term, but like in terms of me going, Stan Lee is an evil man and I'm writing this to tear him down. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I don't, I don't argue that in the book. Not at all. There's no more, there's no polar polarity here where I'm going, yes, Stan was all saint or all sinner. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but you're right that like right now, that's how people think about things. And therefore there's been a lot of criticism of this book that these people haven't read yet. Mm -hmm. And I get it. Stan is a very beloved figure. Stan means a lot to a lot of people. And I respect that. Mm -hmm. I do not, you know, when I was writing this book, I did not want it to be a hatchet job. I didn't want it to be something that didn't acknowledge Stan's achievements. That was not Mm -hmm. in my interest uh, or it wasn't interesting. You know, I wanted to have something that grappled and that wrestled with uh, questions that are hard to answer about you know, whether someone did something that's justifiable or not. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of anathema to the current discourse to think that way. So hopefully, my, my hope is, again, that people will at least get that I tried to be as, as clear-eyed as I could be. Um, and yeah, hopefully that's how the chips fall. Yeah, and, and reading the book, um, what I came away with, because uh, especially toward the end, I was just having trouble putting it down. Um, in part because it's so well written, but also, um, it's horrifying. Like in in a lot of ways, yeah. especially the later years of Lee's life. Um, you know, and, and this is what I think kind of puts the the lie to the idea that this is a, a hit piece or anything like that. Um, there's a like it's it's it, there's a tremendous amount of heartache uh, in the latter part of his life, and. Um, you know, and, and certainly something like I, I think if anything, like I think a lot about this idea that our culture seems obsessed with this idea of the great man myth, right? Like that yes, we can yeah. we can attach, you know, a, a tremendous achievement to like one executive or one inventor or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and to me, this book is kind of, you know, challenging that, right? It's saying that oh, yeah. like and, and you you hit the nail on the head when you say like we have to sit with ambiguity. Um, and, and that to me, like, is, is, I think one of the things that even if you're not like a, a, a fan of Stan Lee or like, or even really don't care about comics all that much, um, th- I think that's maybe where this book has some value beyond just the, uh, the, the obvious historical Thank you. value. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's, that's the other thing that I'm trying to argue in the book is there are no superheroes, mm-hmm. which is related to the ambiguity question. So it's, it's maybe all wrapped up in the same thing, but I, I wanted to say that celebrities are not superhuman. You know, I mean, just because you really like some, 
Well, just because you like something mm-hmm. doesn't mean there was one someone who's responsible for it. And just because you like someone does not mean that that person is, you know, 100% virtuous and should be held up as an example for how to live your life. Right. Um, you know, and again, that's something that is relevant because we live in this period. And I, I don't know, maybe it's not just this period. Maybe this is just like how America is or how the human species is. Mm-hmm. But we we want our, our the figures that we love to be perfect. Yeah. Um, and that's dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. that's A, it's how people, well, A, you're always going to be disappointed because mm-hmm. reality is going to crash in at some point and nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, B, you end up like ripping apart the people you love then because like when you find out their one flaw you're like well now this person's dead to me Um, and also i would argue most important for the broader social currents um you know when you make somebody out to be superhuman they can get away with a lie you know like if you say this person's perfect you're not really looking for the flaws you in fact if someone points out the flaws you're much more likely to be defensive Mm -hmm. and reject knowledge of them um, and that means people, you know, the, the classic example of this is politicians, right? I mean, you have politicians who get held up as these populist heroes. And one of the ways that as a politician, you can get away with doing things that are nefarious or self-interested is by having the cover of people just assuming you're great. Mm-hmm. Um, people then say, well, whatever he, she did, um, he, she, they, they Mm -hmm. did because they wanted what's best for me or because they were trying their best, or that was, that was the the best option available to them. Or they were misunderstood or something like that. Sorry, say again. Or they're misunderstood or something like that. Or they're misunderstood, right. Or, or the facts are wrong or whatever. And that's how you can then, if you're a politician or, or anybody and Stan is a classic example of this, that's how you can get away with, doing things that are unsavory that the public would otherwise criticize you for. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to, to delve into that and say, that's just, again, not how humans work. We're, we're not, we're not meta humans. We are very flawed, tragic little bags of flesh, you know? So anyway, yes, that, that was something else I was looking at. And this at. idea too, like, you know, I, I have on my wall, this, this interesting piece, an actual Stanley action figure. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it's cool. Like, this is a really nice little piece of memorabilia. But also, yeah. like, what, at the point you are immortalizing somebody as an action figure, as a toy, yeah. can you really truly, like, they kind of go beyond that idea. And so it makes, uh, like, like you said, it makes criticism very difficult. Totally. I mean, look, Stanley created, Stanley Martin Lieber created a character called Stanley. Mm-hmm. It took him decades and decades to refine Stanley into the character that we now recognize and that is immortalized in that action figure. Mm-hmm. That was really only in the 70s that he started to really crystallize the image and the talking style and all of that. Um, and that character has been enormously successful and is an instrumental part of the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, literally has been a character in a lot of Marvel stories, even going back to the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hell, he was in a story in the frickin' 50s where it's basically him, the Raving Maniac, which was this thing about the Frederick Wortham, you know, anti-comics crusades of the 50s. I mean, Stan, although he's not named, is like, it looks like Stan. It sounds like Stan. He's a comic book editor, um, the character is. So, you know, you have to reckon with the fact that Stan has been a part of the Marvel universe. That character is a character in that realm. 
And sure, a character can be virtuous. Mm -hmm. What's dangerous is that character is seen as being coterminous with a real person who, you know, was named Stan Lee. He cha legally changed his name just to further confuse everybody, um, you know, in terms of what's real and what isn't. Um, and, you know, yeah, you can make an action figure of, uh, of a character from comic books and feel okay about it, but making an action figure of a real life person, unless it's being done sort of ironically and with some degree of, you know, critical distance mm -hmm. is, again, it leads into that dangerous adoration of celebrity that we, we really fall victim to a lot of the time. And and what's fascinating to me, so there's like a there's so many different directions I want to go in off of that. So yeah, um, let, let's start with the idea. You, you mentioned he changed his name, and one of the things that's that recurs a lot throughout the book is this sort of complex relationship he had with his family and his heritage. Oh, um, yeah. And you know, at, at one point he he said publicly in, in a biography saying like you know I, he regretted changing his name, but that's like the only time he's really ever grappled with that publicly as far as we yeah, can tell yeah he did yeah. yeah go ahead go ahead but yeah so i mean how much you, that persona and brand do you think came about as a result of that relationship uh with his with his family yeah, and such yeah yeah well i think a lot of it i mean it, it's hard to be a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. uh but um it certainly seems that one of the driving forces in Stan's life was a desire to get away from the circumstances into which he had been born, mm -hmm. whether that was class circumstances or ethno-religious circumstances or just the circumstance of being around his family. He really wanted out from all of that. And that's something he's he said. I mean, that's that's not me doing a whole lot of assumption. Mm -hmm. Um and and his brother Larry Lieber, whom I was lucky enough to interview for about you know five and a half hours or something, four hours in one session and then an hour and a half in another one. You know he he backed that up. He was like, yeah, Stan didn't really want to be a part of this family or the world that he was a part of uh, initially when he was was brought, born and reared. Um, and um, yeah, I think a lot of the creation of the Stan Lee character had to do with wanting to be someone other than the Stanley Martin Lieber he'd been born as. Um, and, you know, he always said the reason he changed his name was because he wanted to write the great American novel and reserve his name for that. Mm -hmm. And that may well be partly true, but I, I would contend that another force there was his desire to just not be a Lieber mm -hmm. or not, you know, not be Jewish, not be, I mean, not that he changed his name to sound less Jewish. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may have, but he certainly never admitted to that. And in fact, denied that a lot. Right. Um, but he just didn't have any interest in really being a part of his family or the Jewish community. Um, you know, those two realms just held no interest for him. And he and Larry had a very strained relationship. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, by the end of his life, it was like, you know, Stan would come to New York City. He lived in Hollywood or sorry, in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, Stan would come to New York City to do Comic-Con appearances and just like wouldn't even tell Larry who lives in New York. Right. Like, he would just show up. Larry would hear from a third party that Stan was coming to the con and he would like maybe stream it and like wonder why his brother didn't call him. Um, so, you know, and then there's the Jewish aspect where he was born Jewish to two very you know, staunchly Jewish parents. Mm -hmm. These were not assimilationist parents for the mo most part. And, you know, they did not reject Jewishness by any means. I mean, his dad was 
Jack Lieber was, was very passionate about being Jewish. She was born in Eastern Romania and suffered a lot of anti-Semitism growing up. And, you know, broadly speaking, if you went through a lot of anti-Semitism, you kind of have one of two directions that you go in. Either you say, this isn't worth it and I'm going to assimilate, or you say, um, this only strengthens my resolve in being Jewish. And that was Jack. Jack, you know, one of the most fascinating things I learned during all of this, I mean, arguably the most, for me, just the most personally interesting piece of information I got was from Larry. Larry talking about Jack sending these letters to Stan and Larry, but especially to Stan um, in the 60s when Marvel was really blowing up and doing well. Uh, Jack would just send these letters saying, you're, you're not doing enough for the Jewish people. Um, it was like, you're not celebrating the holidays, you're not supporting Jews, you're not supporting the state of Israel, stuff like that. And um, that's so interesting to me, because obviously Stan didn't care about any of that. And here's his dad, not even implying it, just directly saying, I want you to be a Jew. Why aren't you a Jew? Mm-hmm. And Stan, you know, just, I don't know what he answered in, in letters back to his dad, but he certainly in his life didn't take any of that to heart in terms of how he lived publicly. Um, you know, he, he just, there's an interesting thing that I feel like a moron because I, I, for some reason it didn't register in my brain before I was done with the book. I've only noticed it after the manuscript was turned in, but in Stan's first memoir, Excelsior released in 2002, um, there's a moment where he talks about him and his wife, Joan, who was an Episcopalian English woman, um, trying to adopt after uh, their second child died just a few days after being born. And, you know, it was an intermarriage. So back in the fifties, you couldn't adopt into a mixed marriage. Um, And that part's in the book, but the thing that was interesting was in the memoir, he describes the mixed marriage. And when I reread it for this other thing that I'm writing, I noticed that he said, um, Joan was Episcopalian and my parents were Jewish. Mm -hmm. Not I was Jewish. It was my parents were Jewish and that's why we couldn't do the mixed marriage or we couldn't do the, the, the adoption. Um, And that says a lot. I mean, he, he just didn't think of himself as being Jewish. And for me, who, I mean, maybe I should have said this earlier, I'm Jewish and I write a lot about Jewish issues. Mm-hmm. So that stuff was really important for me to, to understand, both just for my own edification, but also because I think it really helps explain how Stan turned out. I mean, he, you know, if his father was this stern, extremely Jewish guy, Stan turned to the exact opposite. He was this fun-loving, happy-go-lucky, at least character. I mean, that was how he presented the world. Obviously, it was more complicated and private, but he created this persona that was very, you know, fun-loving and and bouncy, mm-hmm. um, while at the same time completely de-ethnicizing himself. I mean, he still had that New York accent, that New York Jewish accent to a certain extent, but like, other than that, he could have been anybody, and that and he wanted to be somebody to everybody. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, you're, you are right that moving away from that was, was something that was important in that story. Right. And, and so, you know, this idea, like it's, it's about building a brand in a lot of ways, but also oh, yeah. contributes to a myth. And so like when mythology and branding kind of come together, you know, it begs and, and you end on a really, so I, I'm glad you mentioned the interviews with uh, his brother, which I thought were just really, um, you know, that was some of the, you know, we talk about this book being heartbreaking. That was some of those heartbreaking stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, you end on a quote from his brother that I'm not going to spoil. I think that it's worth reading the book yourself because I think it hits a lot harder. Um, but 
it gets right at the core of that. And what strikes me at this, like we know what the value, I think, in a lot of ways is of maintaining that brand and that mythology for Lee himself, mm -hmm. right? But sure. you'll notice that it's, it's a lot of what builds it isn't just him going out and doing this stuff. It's also Disney. It's also, you oh, know, yeah. the other companies he's worked with. You know, he does guest appearances on The Simpsons where they play this up, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so what's the value of maintaining that idea of Stan Lee as the beating heart, the creative engine of Marvel for companies like Disney, who, you know, owns all this stuff? Sure. Well, you've just answered your own question. They wanted, uh, you know... When these characters were created, the two candidates for the main create for main creative force are Stan and and Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was a freelancer who had no love for Marvel. Stan was a longtime company man, full time employee, um, and even if Marvel was. Love is maybe not the right word, but he was deeply embedded at Marvel and saw himself as pretty much equivalent to the Marvel brand. So, um, you know, Stan was willing to let Marvel, uh, which, you know, then was bought by Disney, um, you know, in, many years later in, in 2009, um, Stan wanted, uh, Stan was fine for the most part with Marvel saying, we own all of this stuff. And it would have been harder for them to do that if it had been unambiguously Jack Kirby, because since he was a freelancer and he was coming up with these characters on his own and not really by direct, I mean, again, this is Jack's version of events. Mm -hmm. if, if we take that as gospel and say, you know, he was creating these characters on his own without direction um, and building them at home while he was a freelancer, most notably before the 1978 uh Copyright Act that established what work for hire consisted of, you can make a very strong argument that Jack Kirby owns all those characters and not Marvel. Um, so Marvel had a very vested interest from an early time in characterizing all of this as the brainchild of Stan Lee, who, although he was writing as a freelance, he was getting a freelance rate for writing, um, he was still a full-time employee and was, you know, the, the main editor. So um, that made their claim a lot more uh, easy to stake. That said, when you talk about something like The Simpsons, that's a great point. Simpsons doesn't have any vested interest mm -hmm. in, in, you know, they don't own the, the Marvel character rights, but why would you rock the boat? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why, if you're, if you're uh, a secondary, you know, a, a, a third party here, if you're um, somebody who's putting Stan Lee in a cameo, A, you probably aren't going to bother researching any of it enough to find out that there are disputed claims there, um, just because humans, myself included, are lazy. Um, but there's also just, why would you want to be the person who bursts the bubble? You know, I mean, that's something that like uh, I'm facing, like I said, I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm like not drumming up sympathy for myself. I'm just showing how people react to this sort of thing, which is people are, up, you know, get up in arms and that makes sense. And why would, you know, the Big Bang Theory, when they have Stan Lee on, why would they want to say, oh, there's Stan Lee? You know, he may or may not have created the Marvel right. Universe, <laughs> you know. That's 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 no fun for anybody. It's much easier in a storytelling context to, like I said, pretend there is no ambiguity mm -hmm. and say, well, this is Stan Lee. He's the genius behind Marvel. And even in his later years, when he started using the term co-creator, which he always said, if you asked him more pointedly, that he didn't actually believe in. He saw himself as the creator. He was just sort of 
magnanimously and for legal purposes saying co-creator, even when that was happening, it still was not a matter of him like sharing credit um, in terms of how people portrayed him. Mm-hmm. Like he wouldn't correct people if they just said he was the sole creator. Um, he never did. I mean, that, that was not something that, and that, that happened a lot, even after he'd adopted the co-creator title, like I say, he still would get called the creator and it's not like he would, you know, say, Hey, Hey guys, calm down. It's not, mm-hmm. I'm not the co- only creator. There's, there's other people involved here. I mean, that wasn't what he did, nor did he have any interest in that. Yeah. I actually remember specifically the first time I heard himself refer to himself as the co-creator was in the narration for the PlayStation one Spider-Man game. Where he kicks oh, the, I didn't play no, that. Yeah, he, he, he literally kicks the game off by saying, hello, true believers, co-creator, or Spider-Man co-creator Stan Lee here. So he's like very, and I always thought that was kind of interesting. Like, oh, because I knew there was like a oh. little bit of debate about that kind of stuff back when, you know, this is a when, long when time did ago. That, when did that come out? Oh, it's going to be early 2000s, I think. Um, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because he, around 1999 was when he started using yeah, that term. I think like 2000 was, sounds about right. Yeah, um, huh. So, yeah. And, and so what's interesting, though, uh, you know, and, and you could also talk about like the idea of work for hire and how that probably also kind of made a lot of this sort of stuff easier in a lot of ways. Right. What do you mean easier? Well, in terms of like being able to maintain the idea that you created something or that the company owned something because technically a lot of artists and writers did work for hire. Right. Like. Right. Well, sure. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the the work for hire is, I think. Uh, uh, I mean, this is one place where I'll editorialize because I, as a person who, I'm not an artistic creative, but I am a creative insofar as I like write things for a living. Yeah. I used to be a member of union when I was, when I was full time. One, you know, one thing I'm, I'm unambiguous about is I really hate work for hire as a concept. I mean, if I writing my articles didn't have any ownership of them, uh, you know, and was just completely signing away everything I wrote, I would, I, I can't imagine that. that. That doesn't happen virtually at all in sort of serious journalism. And I would never trade that. And the comics industry forces you to trade that and has done and continues to do so. If you write something for Marvel and you write or draw something or write and draw something for Marvel and you create a character, you don't own that character. I mean, there was a period when there were like profit sharing things um, that were, you know, granted to some people and then that's not really happening anymore. And Marvel will sometimes send a big chunk of cash to you um, if a character you created for them is a big part of a movie. Um, but that's not the same. I mean, it's it's not a legal right to the character that created. You're still that you created. You're not getting the sweat of your brow um, respected and, and legally enshrined. And yeah, it was very useful for everyone to have, for not everyone, for the the people who are on the management side um, to have work for hire as the paradigm, because then they own everything. And now it's more firmly established through what I would argue are just sort of legal loopholes. They're not, they're completely violate the spirit of the law. Um, But by the letter of the law, Marvel and DC get away with owning other people's creations. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's no moral argument for work for hire when it comes to comics. There are arguments of like expediency and, you know, well, it's, it's either you have laws or you don't, and we should, you know, maneuver what the system already says, or, you know, most dastardly of all, 
if you if 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 the Supreme Court if the case that almost went to the Supreme Court on behalf of Jack Kirby's estate about the ownership of those characters, which was you know settled in 2014, if that had gone all the way to Supreme Court and been decided in favor of Kirby, it would destroy the entertainment industry. Um, it would have set, uh, especially in comics uh, and comics adaptations, but it would have a trickle effect throughout the or ripple effect rather throughout the rest of the entertainment industry because it would have been saying, well, work for hire isn't so much actually illegal. Um, and specifically for these comics properties, that would have led to, you know, Disney not being able to make the Marvel Cinematic Universe anymore or, or having a lot of impediments to it that would cause them to say, you know what, this isn't worth it because um, uh, we can't get nearly as much money out of it. And fans would be furious about that. And that didn't come to pass, but, um, so maybe I'm, you know, surmising something that is not actually true, but I would guess if that had happened, there would have been huge fan backlash and that, that, you know, maybe I'm getting angry about something that wouldn't have happened, but I get angry when I think about yeah. that because it's not just the, the evidence you see for that kind of fan rage is even if this didn't occur, cause it didn't play out that way. You see like with the, um, you know, with, uh, Disney buying Fox. Yeah. You know, it's the the inverse of that, where people were just so overjoyed because, yeah, now, you know, Wolverine gets to hang out with Captain America, um, completely ignoring the fact that it's further solidifying uh, Disney as one of, mm -hmm. you know, as this near monopolistic presence, or at least enormously oligopolistic, I think I pronounced that right. Close enough. Uh, we'll go with it. Close enough. Presence in the entertainment industry. And people just don't care about that. They don't care about the business realities. They want to see their universes be fun and exciting. Yeah. And I get that. I, I, I get a thrill out of that stuff too. But I really hate how much geek culture has been totally divorced from labor rights and, you know, ethics in business. All we want is the, the, the thrills of these stories. And we don't want to think about who gets hurt in the process. Yeah, it's, and it's very rarely that we do, right? I think the only time that I can think of where you actually did see a big creator's rights movement was with Bill Matlow uh, back when yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy came out. Um, because that was a guy who literally made a character that was part of this, you know, I, I don't know how much that movie made, but it had to be getting close to the billion dollars worldwide. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great example. Yeah, and, and, you know, it was because people got mad and said he should be getting a part of that because he was a guy who um, was, you know, needed, uh, like, round-the-clock care. You know, he was not wow. able to work anymore. Um, and, and so, but that's so rare. That's so few and far in between. Oh, it's totally rare. Yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally, yeah, you'll get some moment, some flashpoint where something happens. Like, you know, um, uh, Jim Starlin, who created Thanos, right. you know, on his own. I mean, he was a writer artist. Everything about Thanos was just from his head. Um, you know, he famously in, you know, I think it was 2018 or something when around when Infinity War was coming out or maybe it was slightly before that. He made the comment that he got more money out of uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, where like KG Beast, a character that he was involved in, you know, uh, they created like has 20 seconds of screen time practically, but because DC had a better um, sharing agreement when it came to uh, the money you get for these characters, uh, he got paid a lot more. Whereas Thanos, which is this, you know, the core of the Marvel Cinematic Universe from Avengers on to, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame, um, 
you know, he wasn't, he wasn't getting anything out of it. Uh, or I, I may be misremembering that he was getting some tiny trickle of money, but he, he said, you know, I'm getting more out of the DC thing than the Marvel thing. And that led to Marvel uh, slash Disney um, cutting a deal with him that he, when I interviewed him for this profile that I did of him, he, he didn't want to get into details of what the terms of the arrangement were, but he was like, I'm satisfied. It's fine. But like, that is such a rare thing to have happen. Yeah. Um, that does not, usually creators don't even raise the fuss because they need to still get work in comics mm -hmm. and don't want to rock the boat. Um, or they just think it's useless and don't even put up the fight. Um, so yeah, no, you're right. It happens very rarely and that's deeply frustrating. So what's interesting about all this, I mean, and, and we could even talk about like, if you want to get into DC's history with this stuff with Siegel and Schuster, that's a whole other, oh, God. like, yeah, I, no, I, I don't want to make it sound like DC yeah. is like a lot better. No, historic. they're both <laughs> terrible at it. They're both really bad at labor rights. Yes. I, I actually, so I teach a, a, a class uh, where we talk about the superhero and kind of how it like manifests in different ways in history and society. And when I try to explain the rights to Superman and how that got, how complicated that got, I have to stop every five minutes and be like, are you still with me? Because like yeah. it was such a mess, but um, so uh, getting back to Stan Lee, though, I mean, you know, yeah. one of the things that kind of comes out a lot in all of this um, is the fact that he was never really that satisfied doing comics. Like you said, he wanted to write a novel. You know, there were those attempts at trying to make his own like TV shows, like a public affairs show. Um, yeah. Do you think that weighed on his mind, especially in later years? Because I know there was like the financial aspect that you go into a lot in the book. Um of why he would do this, but he associated himself with some pretty shady companies and characters, uh, yeah. like like Pow Entertainment and Stanley Media. Do you think a lot of that had to do with that desire to do something beyond comics to be bigger oh, than that? Sure, absolutely. There were the the two motivating factors were he needed liquid cash um, because his um, uh, his uh, his his wife and his daughter. You know, I I don't want to sound libelous or anything but by all accounts from people who know them including stan uh had very expensive tastes and habits so stan needed to have that income flow so he could keep up with his family but the other thing arguably more important was yeah he wanted that prestige he wanted to be big he wanted to be a mogul mm -hmm. um he wanted to be big in hollywood especially but he also wanted to be taken seriously as like this artist outside of comics i mean he he you know worked on poems and uh you know worked on uh book projects that didn't really go anywhere um or you know were released but kind of landed with a thud and you know yeah getting involved with some of the people and, and companies that he did in his later years um somewhat to his detriment uh in some cases very much to his detriment um had a lot to do with the fact that he wanted to be taken more seriously and be more famous and respected and if you could come up to him and say, hey, Stan, I've got an idea that's going to make you rich and famous beyond your wildest dreams, his response tended to be, I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you could really convince him, then he would go along with basically whatever you asked him to do. Um, I mean, you hear stories about his final few years and what over what what is overwhelmingly fascinating is he... Um, over and over again, um, he he had the opportunity to sort of like extricate himself from these situations and didn't because he he was so impressionable in a lot of ways. I mean, you hear people talk about, I mean, you, you see him in, in those final years giving statements where like one day he'll say, this associate of mine is the greatest friend I've ever had. 
And then the next day, he'll release a statement saying this guy was trying to steal from me and he's Satan incarnate. And then it'll go back to the first thing and all over the place. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that just whoever was talking to him at that point, he would listen to and say kind of what they asked him to, even if it wasn't, you know, him being held at gunpoint, he just would think, okay, well, this person is telling me this thing is true. It must be true because I trust them and they want to, you know, they want what's best for me, even if that was not necessarily the case. So uh, one of the other things that comes out about his later years in life, uh, and one of the parts of the book that haunted me as I was reading it, um, was uh, you met with uh, uh, Kea Morgan um, in the book. Kia, Kia, Kia yes. sorry, yes. Uh, That's fine. And, uh, you know, Kia had tapes of, kind of like candid tapes of Lee behind the scenes, and, you know, uh, without getting too much mm-hmm. into the details of it, you know, he was saying stuff that was at best problematic, uh, yeah. at worst, yeah. maybe openly racist. Um, and, yeah. and, and you have a line in there that I want to share if that's all right with you. Yeah, um, go ahead, yeah. Taken as a whole, the recordings I just devoured were a harsh reminder of the fact that a person's true self will always be just beyond the biographer's grasp. I mean, you are someone like you, like you said, you were a Marvel kid. I was a Marvel kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you read the comics. You, I mean, you weren't necessarily as like uh, enamored with Lee as a lot of people. Um, how did this project change your personal relationship and fandom with not only, you know, Lee, Marvel, all of this together? Um, you know, I'd kind of become such a jaded cynic uh, over the course of reporting on the comics industry that I didn't have a whole lot of fandom left. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly changes your perspective about Stan, even if you're not, you know, uh, a huge devotee, it's not something that people know about. I certainly didn't know about. I, I, I never even suspected, um, maybe I should have, given his age, that he uh, would would say things that were as bigoted as he was saying on these recordings. Um, and I, it makes you think twice about um, assuming that you understand a person. I mean, again, I, I had, that those tapes I heard relatively late in the process. I mean, this was October of 2019 when I heard them and, you know, I turned in the first draft in, you know, December of 2019. So it was, you know, the, the home stretch. Um, and it really made me go, you know, I hope the reader understands when I say that I don't, I realized in that moment that I don't, I, I would never know the full stand um, because there were layers of him that you could only get at if you were in the inner, inner, inner circle. Um, and it was really hard to get it. Well, if you were a certain kind of person, it would be weirdly kind of easy to get into it. But for you or I, it, it that, that invitation was not really open. And he certainly wasn't like talking like that to the wider public. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It changed my perception of him insofar as I realized there were a lot of aspects of him that, I could only get light glimpses of and could not see in huge, great detail um, because I was not in the room when these things were happening, when he was saying these things. And, you know, I mean, the recordings, just for listeners to know, I mean, although Kia told me, well, Stan knew all about me putting up these these recording devices in his home so you could could hear him, um, you know, the sense I got listening to the tapes was if Stan knew, he definitely had forgotten Mm -hmm. by then. He was just saying things that were so clearly 
things that he wanted to keep completely close to the vest in terms of his personality and his familial problems and all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I basically my conclusion, my answer to your question is what I said in the book. It's just, it, he's always, he's elusive. We all are, you know? Yeah. It's hard to ever truly know somebody. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a mundane thing to say, but you have to remind yourself of that because again, people don't want to sit with ambiguity. And so you have to really hammer home that the, yeah, a person's true self will always be somewhat obscured. And true. And you know, this is your friendly comics grandpa, right? Like this, uh, that's yeah. why I call him in the intro. Uh, he, it's, it's, it's hard to, to have somebody for who a lot of people was a consistent presence in their life to suddenly kind of sit with that. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. And and again, this is not me trying to cancel Stan. No. I mean, one thing you have to remember is with these recordings, they recorded when he was like 90, mm -hmm. somewhere in his late mid to late 90 or mid 90s. Um, we, it's the, the recordings weren't dated, but just based on the turn chain of events that was happening, it would have been in his final few years and he died just shy of 96. So when you get pretty old, and your mental faculties are starting to leave you, your inhibitions will also be reduced and you might, and also he, he was, you know, he's born in 1922. Mm -hmm. He was a child of a different generation. So none of that's to justify. Mm -hmm. It's more just me saying I, people are complicated and I was not setting out to put that stuff in the book just so I could be like, screw this guy. Right. If that's the conclusion you come to, I certainly don't blame you. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to present it in the context of like, well, you, you don't really know a person and people can disappoint you and confuse you. And to be you clear, know? that's not what I thought was happening at all. But um, no, I, I didn't think you were either. Yeah. I, I just, it's, it's something, I mean, I'm nervous about that. Of Putting course. that out into the world. I, I don't want, I, you know, I'm glad we're having, we're talking about that aspect deep into this conversation as opposed to right off the bat, mm -hmm. because I don't want the headline for this book to be like shocking tapes reveal right. that stands was a, a huge racist um, or homophobe or whatever that that is I think important data to have but you have to put it in the context of this guy's whole life mm -hmm. and kind of have a nuanced understanding of what might have been going on there even if what he was saying is unjustifiable right so uh the book uh like again I think is just it's a necessary read for anybody who um likes comics or is interested in these larger topics about you know uh our collective memory of people and uh, and that sort of thing. And I know you're still early on in it, but you know, your next project is also very interesting to me and I hope maybe you can come back and talk about it later. Um, I'd love to. Yeah. Uh, you're writing a biography of WWE chairman, Vince McMahon. And uh, when we talk about the concept uh, on this, on this uh, podcast, we've talked about the idea of kayfabe. Uh, Cause I did a, I did an interview mm -hmm. about uh, pro wrestling. Um, I think for the last episode we did. Um, and just like, you know, Stan Lee was kayfabe. Like, you know, like you said, he was a character that was yeah. built and, you know, you, you had to, you know, protect the business in a lot of ways, as the old wrestlers would say. And so in many ways, like going to Vince McMahon, who is also a deeply problematic person uh, mm -hmm. who enjoys a significant cultural cachet and also has, you know, uh, in recent years, significant political connections uh, um, to our to, you know, every aspect of life in a lot of ways. Is that what brought you to this? Uh, like, what parallels do you see? Or do you think, like, these are companion pieces? Or uh, I know it's still early on. You know, we'll see how it shakes out. You know, I haven't, I, I'm still doing the research. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't started writing. I've never written a little bit here and there. But I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what shape the book's going to take yet. The Vince McMahon book. Um, but there's certainly parallels. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, you've outlined a bunch of them. They're both 
these sort of self-made characters who, um, you know, in both cases had, you know, the same name, Vince McMahon or Stan Lee is applied to a, a legal entity mm-hmm. that is corporate and a legal entity that is an actual person. You know, there's the character and there's the person and they are sometimes coterminous, sometimes not. Sometimes one is an exaggeration of traits that the other has. Sometimes they are an outright lie about what traits the, the other one has. Um, and, you know, they're both unbelievably good salesmen. Mm-hmm. Um, they both revolutionized their industries and um, made those industries and more specifically their companies and more specifically they, them themselves uh, extremely powerful and, you know, at certain costs. Um, and, you know, I don't want to give away the game, but I think I think if people like the Stan Lee book, they will they will. Um, perhaps be intrigued in with with what I'm doing with the Vince book, just because there are a lot of I mean, there's a lot of differences as well mm-hmm. to be sure, a, a ton of them. Um, but I think some of these ideas about being the self-made carnival barker whose uh, constructed image obscures a lot of uh, challenging realities is something that you can see in in both of these stories and therefore that will probably end up in in the Vince McMahon book as well. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Thank you. So uh, we're just about running out of time here. I know you're a busy guy, uh, but is there anything else you want to discuss? Like anything like you're, you're reading or want to recommend or listening to, or (laughs) like, I always like to kind of like, just like kind of see where you're at too, just as like, you know, you're, we're all in quarantine right now. We're all trying to just make it work. What's uh, what, what, what's on, what are you doing? Lately, it's been a lot of book promo, mm-hmm. so I haven't had a ton of time to kind of indulge in other other passions, but um, I'm trying to think. Anything interesting I've been doing? I, I just started my first John le Carre novel. All right. How about that? Okay. That's, I, that I had not read anything by him, uh, shamefully, and I started reading The Little Drummer Girl, and I'm finding it very interesting so far. Uh, so maybe that's something i've been watching um uh the good lord bird a good very excellent tv show although the pandemic has destroyed my attention span so me and my spouse have been watching it very intermittently and not all in one go um i don't even remember what binge watching feels like anymore um so you know i'm doing the best that i can to to get by um and stay on my grind and yeah it's been a little frustrating doing the book promo because I haven't had as much time to work on the Vince book, mm-hmm. um, which I sort of thought I was really, you know, barreling ahead on. And then, you know, abruptly I had to sort of go back into Stan world, but uh, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's just something that, yeah. you know, once, once book promo winds down, I'll, I'll get fully back into the routine of watching, you know, old, old Raws on, uh, Raws and Smackdowns and even stuff predating that mm-hmm. on WWE Network and like reading weird wrestler memoirs and old Dave Meltzer newsletters and everything. So I, I look forward to getting back to that, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm back, back in Stan land. Is there anything, is there any such thing as a wrestler memoir that's not weird? Is, is my question. <laughs> well, you know, Bret Hart's <laughs> is not that weird. Bret's is like weirdly straightforward. It's just sort of, here are the things that happened to me. I kept an audio diary so I can tell you exact dates. And it's, it's amazing. I, I, it's a really good memoir and really tells you a lot about wrestling. Um, I Um, love Foley's, uh, the Foley's is great too. um, Yeah. Actually, uh, I met him and, uh, he signed it for me. I did an interview with him, uh, for my college radio show. So, uh, I, I have a photo and he signed it. So that's in my office. That's pretty cool. That's my, Uh, that's my one big celebrity thing. I don't, (laughs) 
No, Foley's first memoir I read in my eighth grade reading class, Mm -hmm. which was just a class where you had to pick books and read them and be forced to have literacy. And uh, (laughs) You will read a book and you will like it. Read a goddamn book, kids. (laughs) I was in public school, so, you know, you have to force people. But um, I, I remember reading Have a Nice Day for that and just being overjoyed that there was like an opportunity to read an actual good book about wrestling. Um, that was like well written. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, whatever people's flaws may be, uh, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a good read. Uh, so uh, I know you have some other projects going on too. Uh, anything else you want to promote uh, before we sign off? Um, you know, just head over to abrahamreisman.com. You know, it's I E uh, I before E. And uh, although if you misspell the I E and do it E I, I also have that domain registered Smart. and redirect the I E. So it's the family curse. They just, everybody misspells it as E I when it should be I before E. Um, so yeah, go to abrahamreisman.com. You can see lots of other stuff. And I'm recapping WandaVision every week. That's that's my sort of regular gig right now in terms of having, you know, a recurring thing. So if you if you want to see my thoughts, my conflicted thoughts uh, and feelings about that particular Marvel product, um, come on down to vulture.com on Friday mornings and you can see my recaps. I do recommend doing that. I've been watching the show and then I'll go check out the recaps afterward. I haven't seen this week, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like the way you said yeah <laughs> well it's a weird it's an episode well i don't want to tell okay, you yeah but, but yeah but there's a twist at the end that will either have you gleeful or like oh my god so you know we'll we'll see or both who knows it's the marvel cinematic both, universe I know, as, that that is being a geek yeah. these days <laughs> you consume culture and go that was awesome but also god damn it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Abraham, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for being thank on you. the show. This is a real delight. Yeah. Uh, uh, the book is True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, out February 16th. Uh, so you have some time to pre-order it from your favorite local bookstore. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, Abraham, thank you again for being on Serious Fun. Thank you very much. And there we go. I want to thank once again Abraham Reisman. Uh, a wonderful interview. Can't wait to talk to him about the next book. Um, but True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee will be out on February 16th. Uh, plenty of time to pre-order it wherever you want to uh, buy it. Uh, but uh, I, I really, if you are interested in comics or uh, just pop culture studies or anything like that at all, uh, it's, it's definitely something that should be on your radar. So check it out. Um, that's it for this week's episode of Serious Fun. Uh, when will the next one happen? I'm not sure, but keep an eye out. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash learnonaut. That's learnonaut like an astronaut, but with learn uh, instead. And, uh, you know, I want to thank everybody at Phoenix Studios for their patience. I want to thank you for your patience. Of course, all, um, all the folks at Phoenix Studios for their help and all the different ways they make this episode, uh, this, this series possible, um, as well as University of Wisconsin Green Bay for uh, putting it up and uh, sort of uh, allowing me to use their name. They, uh, they haven't stopped me from doing that yet. So here's hoping. Um, but uh, until next time, I want you all to just go out, uh, take care of yourselves, uh, you know, be well, stay healthy and try to have some fun out there. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for University of Wisconsin-Green Bay.
For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.